0: the executive director of the Art Museum, introduces us by saying, John, uh, this is Cheech. I told Cheech that you were the man who could give him a key to the city. And Cheech looks at me and says, but I'd settle for half a key. And <laughs> i uh, we were off to the races immediately.
1: Okay, there we have a clip of uh, retiring city manager John Russo talking about his experience dealing with Cheech Marin, opening a uh, art museum in the city of Riverside, an exhibit in the city of Riverside. It's just one of a, a long cast of characters that I talk about with John uh, in this upcoming interview from Al Davis to Arnold Schwarzenegger and a local government career that spanned 30 years. Um, so we're really pleased to bring you the latest in the kind of periodic uh installment of the california city news podcast with outgoing city manager john russo john has had a long and i think you'd say storied career in local government Uh, he was a city council member in the city of oakland he was that city's first uh, elected city attorney uh, during which time he was also president of the League of California Cities during some really consequential negotiations. Uh, he then went into city management. He's been a city manager in an array of communities in the city of Alameda, the city of Riverside, and, and now Irvine, from which he's retiring this week. Um, so I'm really excited to have John on with us today. We'll get into the interview. I want to make a quick plug for the California City News and California County News Jobs Board. We're the largest jobs board in uh, in local government. I'd say also the best. We've helped fill over 6,000 uh, positions since our founding just about a decade ago. So if you are uh, looking for your next opportunity or if you need uh, talent in your agency, Irvine, if you're listening, um, California City News JobScore is a really great place to go. It's uh, it's easy to use. Uh, it's, it's even easier to read. So thanks. And without further ado, here we go.
2: All right, John Russo, are you with us?
0: yes i am
2: hey rob hey um well i've been looking forward to this uh for some weeks here since we first talked about doing it we are uh you're joining us here on the eve of your retirement from the city of irvine and that caps off what like a 30 plus year career in in local government both elected and uh and as an administrator is that right
0: yeah that's right when you count everything the commissions and all that kind of stuff when you put it all together candidacies um, it's been 32
2: years. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, I think certainly a distinguished career and, and a varied one. I mean, I think you're very unique, one of only a couple others, I guess, like Rick Cole and a few others I can think of off the top of my head, who's been both a, an elected official and a and an administrator. Um, you know, maybe we could we could start there and, and talk about you know how, how how life is on either side of the dais, and, and you know maybe you could also kick it off by saying you know why now, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's been a long career you've certainly served in a lot of interesting and diverse places uh, you know across California um, well, why, why now? what's next?
0: Well, um,
2: a lot of it
0: has to do with um, a couple of things that happened in my personal life. My mom passed away uh, a year ago, just about a year oh, ago sorry and that wasn't a, a big surprise because she'd been declining for years but that's you know, that's apparent. My, my dad had passed away 35 years ago. So losing my mom, you know, that that's like a bell in terms of mortality. Now you're the next generation. Um, and then in the beginning of May, my wife's mother, who I adored, and was completely healthy, just, you know, was 83. But honestly, Rob, if you'd met her, and spent a half an hour with her. And I said, do you think she's 63 or 83? You wouldn't hesitate for a second to say she was 63. She was spry. She was, you know, totally with it uh, upstairs. And so um, she just went to sleep one night and didn't wake up. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: that, with the pandemic, and then to top it off, one of my sons, and he's just 22, is about to become a father. And so, as and I knew about that since late January, but as it became clear that the pandemic was not gonna end soon, I started thinking about um, this young couple having this baby and how challenging childcare was going to be for them to be able to work. And you know, I mean, because you and I have worked together before, you know that um, I spent a lot of time as a single dad when my sons were were boys and raising my my twin boys. And so um, I'm really kind of classic Italian in that way, that I'm really clued into, you know, what is the family about right now? And it just seemed to me that with these um, reminders that none of us knows how much time we have, um, you know, in our lives. Plus the fact that my son and his and his significant other, I felt, were going to need some assistance. um, It just seemed like the right time. So it was really driven, not so much by career choice, it was driven, I I, I was planning to stay another year. I had another year on my contract. But um, it just seemed like it felt really good and like the right thing to do at that moment. And um, that's why I decided to go. And so I gave Irvine three and a half months notice because I wasn't leaving because I was, you know, dying to stop working. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And um, so my last day is next week and the baby's due in the next two and a half weeks. I timed it for around the due date.
2: Yeah. Well, that's exciting news, you know, and I'm sorry for your loss, you know, with your mom. Um, But, you know, glad to see that, you know, there's happy things on the horizon too. I mean, yeah. so you and I you and I met, gosh, I mean, it's almost 20 years ago now. Um, mm-hmm. I think you were president of the League of Cities um, when I came to work yeah, at the you, league in Sacramento. Um, yeah, I think, were, I, think my in, I think you were in <laughs> junior high. I think you were in junior high. Yeah, something right. like uh, that. I
0: was, I was probably
2: age now. Yeah. Well, now that is frightening. So. You yeah. know, I think one of the things, one thing I was really interested in, and you know, again, kind of with both your both your lens on as an elected and, and an administrator, I talked a few years ago to a to a retiring city manager, and he expounded what I thought was a, a really fascinating theory. I'd, I'd be interested in your take on. So he'd been around also for 25, 30 years, and he talked about the change he had seen in elected officials in local government. And fundamentally, mm-hmm. you know, boiled down, what he said is, you know, up through the 80s and 90s. You would get certainly you know like we have now you get you know folks who are retired and so forth who want to give back or um you know have something to do um to be on the city council but you would you would also have mixed in with that you'd have a lot of these sort of like um, ascendant sort of mid-career professionals for whom you know serving on a city council was a kind of an important like kind of stepping stone or, or I guess for lack of a better phrase like an extracurricular activity that would help them in their career. So you're, you know, middle upper management at like your you know, regional bank, small mid-sized company, and they'd say, oh, well, you know, look, you know, John, he's a local mayor. I mean, this is the kind of person that represents the, com- the company, is a, is a good corporate citizen, that kind of thing. It was looked upon, you know, very positively. And this guy's theory was that, you know, somewhere along the line, around the turn of the millennium, a couple things changed. One, you know, maybe there were just less of those companies. But certainly the corporate culture had changed such that, like, this wasn't necessarily looked on as a, as a good, like, sort of extracurricular activity that, you know, one, you should be getting mm-hmm. time with the company. And two, you shouldn't be going out publicly on Tuesday nights and getting beat up over potholes, traffic lights, and God knows what else. And so that there was a shift in kind of the economics uh, incentives, a shift in kind of the cultural attitudes around local officials, you know, kind of becoming these sort of targets. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of only getting worse. And so, you know, I wonder if you see if you perceived a similar phenomenon or if you've seen other changes that are noteworthy. But I think one of the things he talked about that was lost among that was people that knew, you know, really how to read like a ledger. Um, People that understood, you know, um, know, bond amortization, some of the more like sort of fiscal side of things, some of the management Mm -hmm. side of things. And that now you have people that are fundamentally a lot more political and that's not like a good bad or otherwise necessarily but that that was a, that was a reality so you know i mm-hmm. thought that was a fascinating theory i'd be interested in your thoughts on either that or your own separate opinions on the evolution of elected the last years.
0: well there's no question there's been i don't know if i would call it an evolution it might be more of a, a degeneration of uh, the quality of elected officials and i i think a lot of what you just said is correct, and it's good analysis, Um, but one of the things that I I think has happened is, and and I I don't blame any particular politician or individuals for it, I think it's been coming for a long time, and uh, certainly social media has uh, promoted what I'm about to say, and that is um, we've just become a much coarser society in our dialogue with each other. And so you're right that people who are uh, well-balanced, who have full lives, in the past may have felt that part of their performance of service to their community should involve public service and, and serving on a, on a city council. Those folks now, they're not going to do that and because nobody wants, to be doxed nobody wants to have protests in front of their homes where their kids live um, oh. so what you're left with is a much higher percentage of people getting involved who are coming in either as true believers in a cause which cross uh, cross checks very often with partisanship um, or they're coming in because they are um Already involved in politics, you see an unusual amount I mean for years we 've seen a trend towards staffers uh, in the legislature becoming mm-hmm. legislators uh, you're seeing more of that people who were staffed to a county supervisor for example, running for city council um, mm-hmm. or people who were uh, a legislative aide to a council member running for city council so you get more and more people <laughs> or who were legislators and decide that uh, county supervisors a better job that's absolutely correct <laughs> it certainly it certainly pays more um <laughs> Indeed. so you know you, you're getting you you're getting less diversity in terms of the motivations that bring people to
2: city government
0: I had not given thought So oh, you just said it about uh, people who can read a ledger you know my my wife and I come from, uh, originally were both now declined states because we're both public executives, but we come from different political parties, and the reason we were able and, and agree on most issues, the, reason, the, the, the ground on which we find commonality is that we're both people who got our degrees in economics. And so we have a common language, you know the language of opportunity cost, of supply and demand, of uh, the time value of money, all of those concepts that are largely neglected now in how government works. And so um, I've actually come to believe that because the elected are absolutely short term in their view of how policy works and and their needs are to get to the next election, you can't blame them for that. That's how the system works that it has become incumbent on the executive management in public agencies to serve a constituency that otherwise has no voice, and that is the long term. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel that a city manager has to speak for those people who are not yet born, those people who have not yet moved to that city, and those businesses. That will be in the city someday and have not yet gotten, because you cannot expect the elected. It's it, it, it's not fair to ask them to consider that if we buy this you know hamburger today, somebody will have to pay for it in ten years. Um, their attitude in most cases is well you know we'll get there when we get there. You know, if I'm still here, then I'll deal with it. And is that the fault of the elected? I don't think so. I think short-term thinking is now deeply embedded throughout American society. You certainly see it in the private sector with our publicly traded companies. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's a tendency to want to blame the elected for this when the electeds really are representing the values Mm -hmm. of the society around them. And it's irrelevant whether that particular elected, you know, self identifies as conservative, liberal, left, right. They all want what they want right now, which is a reflection, frankly, on the maturity of the public, of the voting public.
2: Yeah. And you know, I think that it's um so I, you know, I've been tracking local electives across California now for probably about a dozen years, and I track the partisanship of it. You know, we've been published in our research on this and you know it was relatively steady you know um with actually plurality republicans sitting on uh city councils until you know four years ago basically and there's been this, this massive influx so i think i think a couple things are interesting is um and, you know, i mean i'm a democrat nominally non-practicing i tell a lot of people mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know um and i think that there has been a uh, long overdue and really positive trend of uh diversification of representation um, you know, mm-hmm. some of that's driven by, you know, move to districts. I think that that has a mixed, mixed success, but, you know, you've got lots of, um, lots of women, um, still not parity, but, you know, there's been a traumatic, dramatic, uh, um, acceleration of that in the last four or five years, um, as well as, you know, other kind of corners. And I think what's interesting is that has happened, I think, somewhat in parallel, we could talk about chicken and egg with a lot of the state's big problems actually really fundamentally being. Local government matters, right? And so, you know, you think about um, housing, right? You know, and housing is now like a significant issue in local elections. Um, you know, whether that be mm-hmm. you know pro-anti development or rent control or, or, or what have you. Homelessness, you know, is kind of an extension of that issue. It's fundamentally, a local government issue to address whatever the legislature you know tries to do. Then you start thinking about you know other kinds of issues, policing, uh, you know, under the jurisdiction of mayors and, you know uh, to a degree you know sheriffs which are also local office holders i think if you think about some of the environmental issues again you know a champion cause of the legislature but who's going to be dealing with sea level rise and, and wildfires on the front end it's, it's, it's local local government so um i guess you know i think it's an exciting time to be involved in local government um but i also wonder like what your thoughts are because i know that you've been active you know also at the state level you ran yourself um, mm-hmm. And you know, serving as president of the league, you're, you're you're kind of no stranger to the you know the capital. You know, can California solve big problems, right? Like, are we con- are we constructed to do that? And I mean, I'm interested in kind of the dynamics of that of the state as you see it. Having worked you know all over it, um, and at different levels of government, and also, um, you know, the state local relationship, right? And what needs to happen for us to tackle some of those issues? So, what are your thoughts on that? Well. Well, so there, there, I have a couple of thoughts about it. I mean,
0: they are, those issues that you raised are, of course, they manifest locally. All issues manifest locally. And there should be a wide range of discretion, uh, for each locality to handle issues that are of local and statewide concern in a local way. But that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is, regardless of whether a city uh, self-identifies as left or right, Democrat or Republican, by and large, this is a generational problem, and boomers just don't want to share anything with anybody. So when you look at something like housing, if you're uh, a community that identifies more on the right, you might say that uh, you don't want more people coming in because you're concerned about crime. But I can tell you from spending over 20 years in Oakland politics that every housing project in Oakland had a local neighborhood group objecting to it, and they were objecting to it. If it were an a affordable housing project in the hills, those nice liberal white folks up in the hills in Oakland didn't say, I, I don't want this project here because I don't want people of lower incomes living near me, what they said was, oh, that's going to cut down all of these trees. Or, you know, people who need services, there are no hospitals or clinics up here and they're not going to be able to get down there because, gosh darn it, AC Transit doesn't have bus routes up here. And they should. And if they did, I wouldn't feel this way. But that'll just mean more cars on the street. And if it's down in the flatlands, then the argument became, we already are oversubscribed to housing that brings in people who have social problems and needs. Go put it up in the hills. and The hills are like, well, you can't put it here because the services aren't here. Go put it in the flats. And so everybody had a reason for not wanting it near them. And yet the city as a whole is as liberal as you get or as progressive as you get. Now, some of that's changed in the past 10 years, 15 years, with the growth of um, the Yimby movement, right? The Yes in My Backyard mm-hmm. movement, and younger people who are not wedded to the automobile as an expression of their personality and their very being. Um, there are some changes, thankfully, on the way. They're not coming from my generation, uh, they're coming from people who are even younger than you. Um, wh- whether or not the COVID moment, takes the wind out of the sails of that move back to density. I mean, there's, there's a, great old, uh, a great old phrase, which I love, which was Californians hate sprawl, but there's one thing that Californians hate more than sprawl, density. And that's a real challenge uh, for all of us. So um, it, it, everybody seems to have a reason, a policy reason, for not wanting more people near them. You know, there's another cliche that, I, that I've that always loved, which is um, a developer is a man who wants to build a house in the woods. An environmentalist is a man who already owns a house in the woods. <laughs> and so, so much of the argument in cities is to demonize home developers and say, wow, well, they're just here for profit. They're just here for their own interests. And sometimes, it's kind of clueless, the same people who are up at the podium at city council, complaining that the developer's just about profit and self-interest, will then say, if you build this, it's going to degrade my property balance. Okay. Okay. So there's a real sense of, I got mine and screw everybody who comes after me. And so to go back to the point, it's... Too much to expect the politicians to defy the people who are voters who are in front of them right now this minute in the service of those people who aren't here yet in a city um and so that's why I think staff has to be staff has to be the voice for the future
2: yeah I mean is there are there policy fixes for what are fundamentally political problems yeah well changing California
0: yeah and, I, and thank you. Yes. I mean, when you say these are local issues, some of the local issues are set up the way they are. Housing, for example, is set up to fail because of the way the crazy California tax system is devised right now. So put yourself in the role of a, a city council member. I've been one. Um, You put yourself in the role of a city council member and I have a fiduciary duty to the city government, the municipal corporation. And now I'm supposed to defy people who are potentially my voters and put housing in their neighborhood. And when I put the housing in their neighborhood, it is a net revenue loss to the city going forward. Once you get past the initial Impact fees, the the, the front end, the, the the little incentive to actually, you know, mm-hmm. let someone construct a housing unit. Once you get past that, with very rare exception, bringing more people into your town, because of the way Prop 13 is structured, you always end up losing money over time, because the cost of providing that marginal person, that extra person by marginal, I don 't mean that marginal, that extra person, to provide sure. them additional police, fire, schools, all of that, the cost of that service goes up a couple of points every year, you know usually around the rate of inflation, but prop thirteen restricts the property take to one percent every year at most so you know, so what do you do in that case if if you're if you have a fiduciary obligation, when you approve housing, you're being asked to do something politically unpopular that is not in the financial
2: interest of your organization you know, yeah' you know, fascinating. I guess i I mean that fiscalization of land use that's been around my entire career. Some people you know you can produce different studies to say otherwise, but I mean you're looking at like the ledger the at the dollars and cents on the paper. And it's well, fascinating, too, you know, the, the degree to which you have cities that neighbor one another that really have different, you know, portfolios, so to speak, and different incentives, right? Your bedroom well, community, you have different incentives than, like, say, Santa Ana and Irvine, you know, other right. side of the freeway, well, very different places.
0: Yeah, but, but let's go back. You use the term that I find um, amusing, which is fiscalization of land use. The concept that there is something wrong, that, and this is always it's nearly always state actors complaining about local actors mm-hmm. saying, what? what? What does it mean, fiscalization of land use? It, are you supposed to, as a trustee of your city, are you not supposed to judge what the financial impact of your decisions will be? or you're supposed to do it for everything, but not for land use. It, it's mm-hmm. an obs- the, the, the entire idea that fiscalization of land use is an evil is like complaining about cold weather being evil. It is. You have to consider. You're not doing your job as a council member if you don't consider what the consequences of a land use decision will be to the city and to the existing taxpayers and to the taxpayers in the future. The way to solve that is for the state. uh, You know, these local issues exist within a playing field. That's the way to think of it. What are the rules of the playing field? And so for years, you'll recall 20 years ago when I first met you, there were all kinds of proposals to deprive locality of the lousy 1% of the sales tax revenue that they get in order to discourage
2: big-box retail, right? The right. idea
0: that... That was of land use. it was use
2: sprawling. and big-box. Yeah, it creates stores.
0: sprawl, it's auto-based, and people locate these big-box malls right on the border of their neighbors so that they export the traffic burdens and, and, and mm-hmm. costs on their neighbors, blah, 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 blah. And so the approach was, cluck, 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 cities, you shouldn't be doing this, and therefore, we're going to take away this money. And the proper approach would have been, you know, if if they had done that, okay, you might have gotten fewer big box centers, but that wouldn't mean you were going to get more housing. Well, if you they hadn't built the big box the centers, then they wouldn't be able
2: to fight over turning them into apartments now that there's no more big box retail.
0: Well, that's exactly
2: right. It <laughs> you're, it, it you're robbing out, the political I mean, consultants of work here.
0: It turns out, no, you're absolutely right. It turns out that those big box, you know, big box like everything else has a shelf life. The world is yeah. turning. But but my point is, is more, is it once larger about the tax system and also about The way politics works at multi-level and that is as a legislator i get to wag my finger and say we really want you to do more housing do more housing and and to make you do more housing we're going to stop you from doing big box retail but stopping big box retail does nothing zero to change the, the return on investment if you will for the city in taking on more housing in the face of local opposition. It changes nothing. Yeah,
2: you've, it's just the yeah you've, reduced the, you've reduced the incentives for a certain kind of development, but you've done nothing to improve the incentives on the other side. Well,
0: the exactly. Side. And that, that, to me, was one of the – it was really a revelation to me because all of that was coming up just as I was kind of moving up as an officer of the board. At the league of cities, and becoming more involved day to day in being up in Sacramento. I was up in Sacramento like once a week for several years, uh, lobbying and dealing with issues and dealing with other stakeholders: uh, the construction companies, the developers, the uh, the trade unions, uh, the counties, the special districts, You know, you know how it was. You were at the league. We we were very active all the time. And the main issue had to do with how are we going to get cities to build more housing? And Here we are 20 years later, and it's still how are we going to get cities to build more housing? And I'm here to tell you, you need to provide incentives and change the equation financially. Or you don't have any reason, you're not giving the locals any cogent argument to build more, other than it's the right thing to do. And if that's right. if that's what you're waiting on, well that I mean, that's just not realistic, unfortunately. I mean, you know, that that's a question of spirituality, not government, about whether people should of their own volition do right things. They will do self interested things.
2: Yeah. So, um <laughs> your career kind of is it, it sort of straddled, you know, um Prop 1A and, and, a, and a significant change in the relationship between cities and the state. I mean, tell us some good Prop 1A stories. I know you've got that I mean, you know, Schwarzenegger, and, um, you know, negotiating with the league, and you know, one ballot measure and another one. So I mean, some good war stories there would be good. But also interested, like the degree to which you think uh, things have really changed for the better or not. I mean, I guess the the capital legislatures, you know, making four billion dollars a year or whatever it used to be every year. They have a deficit. Um, you know, to 1A and 22 afterwards, you know, has that that worked? Has it measurably improved it? And then, yeah, the war story, of course.
0: Well, so look, on 1A, um, you know, I was thinking about this because you indicated we would talk about this, and I I got a a really funny story about 1A. Uh, At least I think it's funny. Um, Hoping the people who are listening to this will think it's funny. But, um, you know, with respect to 1A, I think that it isn't so much that you can see what it did, but I think it's easy to understand what it prevented. And so, let's go back. I mean, for those who are listening, Prop 1A prohibits the state from continuing to shift revenues that had been local, and there's a list of them, that had been local to the state government. So it's sort of enshrined in the California constitution that, these revenue streams belong to cities, and you can't. Legislature by a mere vote
2: of the legislature,
0: you're not going to be able
2: to take. Them. And, and it was billions um, of dollars a year. I mean, I seem to remember oh, like three, four billion. Like at the, this is back when the state was in a chronic deficit, and it would be August in Sacramento, and they're way past the deadline, and then one night at midnight, we find out that what they used to call the Big Five, when they were still, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a balanced legislature, the Big Five would come out and say, well. Cities, counties were taking were taking this five billion dollars, and so that that yeah. prompted this, right? The cities, you know, I mean, pretty unprecedented way went to the ballot to try and protect those revenues. You were at the forefront, yeah, and, and, and I was, a, yeah, I mean, I was along with
0: quite a few other people who were indispensable to making this happen. Um, but but yeah, I was definitely in, in the middle of it. Um, it's it, so at that time I was going around the state giving speeches and I had developed a stump speech kind of to try to encourage uh, local officials who were sort of skeptical both so skeptical and weary and beat down by the constant rate by the state yeah, legislature it was no fun on their revenue yeah. and at the and, and always at the last minute always you point out in August
2: nearly every city in California runs their budget so I, Starting yeah. on July one, cities so would you pass their budgets, budget. and then they find out that they yeah. owe the state what, whatever thirty million dollars or something. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Crazy. No, it
0: was it was horrific, terrible way to run a railroad. Um, in that stump speech, I used to come, I used to I use a line that said, "You know, the the legislature can't get their act together, and every year they come in with yet another shift. What we need is a budget less full of shifts." And. And so, um, when you're looking at that, I would ask you. To, and, and, and the problem uh, with it is, as a city, when when the economy goes into reverse, the city is already taking a massive hit that it has to, you know, with which it has to cope. To then have it have that impact amplified and doubled, because now the state would shift its problem back down to the locals. It, it was really problematic. My sense, Rob, is when the Great Recession, the housing bubble burst in 2007, 2008, it's a darn good thing we passed 1A because I, to this day, believe that a couple of dozen California cities would have gone under in the Great Recession, above and beyond what already happened several cities, if the legislature had been able to bail itself out with the city by money. shifting again with city money county, believe me, yeah. they would have done it and you would have had more and more cities going under. And that's not in anybody's interest, not the states or anybody else. So tell us um, about tell us about Arnold. He started yeah, to go sideways so, at one point, I recall. Well he did. So what happened with Arnold with, with Governor Schwarzenegger, um, was he, the league had decided over a period of years to create a local, uh, a group of local organizers and an infrastructure that would allow the league to compete at the local level rather than try to influence the legislature in Sacramento so that the league would change the battlefield. Sacramento to the home office, if you will, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. in Sacramento, yeah, what can the league offer? What can the league offer? So, so we, we created the regional rep program to create, if you will, you know, custom create coalitions that made sense in each region to pressure the legislators with their home constituencies rather than trying to fight big labor, big business, etc., up in the capital where you're bound to lose. So we did that. That took a couple of years. We then had to convince the membership of the league to raise dues, like more than half, to fund that program. Then we had to create a pact. There was a lot of groundwork that went into Prop 1A over the period of three years. We then went out with a signature drive, and that was Prop 22. And it was you know of course, to get something on the ballot, you got to have over a million signatures so it was an expensive operation, but we did it, and we had a measure that was very much because this is the way the way the initiative system works was very much everything we wanted states uh, partly cities, counties, and um, local government uh, agencies It had everything we wanted um, and so the governor Uh, As we were about to file, the governor got wind of it and said, I want to talk to the leadership of the league. So they set up a conference call. And the conference call is um, the the then president of the league, Ron Loveridge, and the past president, that was me, um, and several of the big city mayors. And before the governor gets on the line, we have a pre call. And at least one of the mayors, is going well when he gets on the line i'm gonna tell him we're gonna have to tell him we can't do things this. Blah, 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 blah. and i'm like hey mayor smith that wasn't his name i'm not going to reveal who it was mayor smith calm down What what is the sonny corleone thing here don't go to, to the toll booth sonny don't go to the toll booth and of course arnold gets on the phone and he says and i quote he, uh, they say okay uh Governor Schwarzenegger, you're joined here by uh, Mayor Loveridge, City Attorney Russo, Mayor so-and-so, Mayor so-and-so, Mayor so-and-so. And -and And Arnold says, great, it sounds as though we have the A-team on the line. Listen, guys, my staff has told me of your problems, and so on and so on. And he kind of gives us this talk where he literally does say, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so on. And I'm doing everything I can not to giggle. And of course, his ask is, look, don't file the initiative. Let me go for you and work with the legislature. And we'll come up with something that's more reasonable that we can all live with that'll be passed in the legislature, silence. Sonny Corleone has left the building. Nobody (laughs) wants to tell him no. So I just step up, because you know me, if anything i don't always have an opinion um i say uh governor we first of all you know thank you for taking the call uh i just we with all due respect we trust you but we don't trust the legislature and if we now don't file these signatures and you're unable to make a deal with the legislature we've just wasted a lot of time and money and we're nowhere so if it's all the same to you we're going to file the signatures and if you're able to make a deal that everyone can live with with the legislature then we will strand our proposition we won't put out any literature for it we won't spend a dime Yeah, abandon it and, and we'll abandon it we'll strand it, right and um we'll maroon it and uh i said look far be it for me to quote Ronald Reagan, but as to this legislature, I'm sure you'll appreciate when I say that from my colleagues and me, we need to trust, but we also need to verify. When you have a deal with the legislature that we can all work with, we'll dump 22 and we'll all hold hands and move forward. And to my surprise, he bought it. And so Couple of days later, we were told by his staff that the governor was going to support 22. He saw, and, and I think Schwarzenegger is largely underappreciated as a centrist governor at this point because you know he committed a major error soon thereafter by adopting those four initiatives to try to undercut mm-hmm. labor. I think that was a big mistake. Yeah. He played right into labor's hands by doing that. Uh, he went for broke, and he, he went broke politically. Um, But I think in many ways, Schwarzenegger was a very good governor and a very effective governor, and not merely because of his celebrity, although that was part of what he was bringing to the table. Schwarzenegger understood that if he went to the legislature and said, we need to make a deal with these guys because they just, you know, they're holding on to these signatures, he was going to get nowhere. The legislative leadership would run the clock out. He understood a basic point in negotiations, which is he was able to go to the legislature and say, you'd better make a deal with me, or these crazy people are going to be on the ballot, and I'm going to be with them. I mean, I surmise that's what he said, because that's what you do in a negotiation. Deal with me, or you deal with them.
1: And yeah. so the we legislature
0: cut, the legislature cut the deal. That's what became Prop 1A, and it passed, as you know, it passed overwhelmingly. It's like, if I'm not mistaken, the highest margin
2: of passage for any initiative. Well, if it's not, let's just leave it, it, it there. It, we'll print the legend. It was certainly a certainly a, a handy handy margin. Yeah, you've been in um, lots of negotiate. I mean, Al Davis, right? The stadium in Oakland.
1: You know, uh-huh.
2: <laughs> what, what, what what were some of the tougher negotiations you had as a manager or city administrator?
0: So. The interesting thing about negotiations in the public sector, um, and it's true sometimes in the private sector, because, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, I, I was a private attorney, a trial attorney, a litigator before I became an uh, elected. And sometime when I was not elected, I was still working as a lawyer when I was a council member. Um, you know, often the biggest problem in a negotiation is not your opponent, it's your client. and So, yeah, I've been through a number of challenging negotiations, um, but the toughest one and the one that took the longest was the negotiation between the Coliseum Joint Power Authority, where I was a co-counsel with the county council, uh, a dear departed friend of mine, Richard Winning, who truly was a close personal friend of mine. Richard and I were co counsel, but Richard was also the county counsel, and I was the city attorney. And we were negotiating with the Golden State Warriors regarding um, a a dispute we had with them about the contract under which Coliseum Arena was rehabbed in 1997. So this dispute was around 2001, 2002, 2003. And it took a long time to make the settlement with the Warriors. Eventually, we did. But the hard part was not dealing with the Warriors. I mean, no harder than any other negotiation. The hard part was trying to get the county and the city to agree with each other on what the position was going to be as to the Warriors. Uh, I would say that was the hardest one. Now, interestingly, uh, that negotiation yielded a confirmation and better language in the agreement that said if the warriors ever left oakland they would have to pay off whatever was left of the bonds that were floated in 97 to fix the arena the new ownership of the warriors the bandits who left oakland and abandoned oakland for chase center in san francisco um those guys on the way out the door like they don't have enough money. they tried to kick Oakland and and Alameda County in the teeth by by basically becoming deadbeats on the bond. And they brought an arbitration on it. And the arbitrator, apparently, didn't take very long to decide and just said, "Nope. The language in this agreement and in the settlement agreement is very clear, and you owe this money. So pay." And that's where that ended. So that was a really, going back to the 2001, 2002, 2003 negotiation, it was a very difficult negotiation, but it yielded some very important results that it, it continue to matter today to the city of Oakland. Um, but again, I, I think folks who aren't in politics don't always understand that your troubles are more often with your friends and your clients than with your opponents and the people across the table from you
2: hmm. what about uh what about cheech in uh riverside you, you, well, there's so many characters along the way here
0: so cheech cheech you know i, I got my wife you know runs in, runs in san bernardino county so you know we're a museum family and um we were members of the riverside art museum And so every time there'd be an opening at Riverside Art Museum, we'd go to the opening, and there'd be, you know, the same 50 or so people there who were supporters of the art museum. Not unusual. That's about right for a city of the size of Riverside. Um, We get a phone call from the director of the art museum. My wife gets the phone call saying, hey, you know, we're doing an opening uh, tonight, uh, tomorrow night. You know, you saw we're doing an opening uh, of some of Cheech Marin's artwork uh, some of the artwork that he's collected. Uh we're having lunch with him tomorrow. Would you and John like to join us and meet Cheech for lunch? Now my wife and I are both just about the same age. She's so like, well I want to meet Cheech Marin. Yeah, of course I want to have lunch with Cheech. Geez, that'd be totally awesome. So we say yes and the next day we're in a group of about twelve people and the executive director of the art museum, introduces us by saying, Don, uh, this is Cheech. I told Cheech that you were the man who could give him a key to the city. And Cheech looks at me and says, but I'd settle for half a key. And <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, we were off to the races immediately. What ensued was a, approximately a two-hour lunch where... Melissa, my wife, and I were sitting directly across from Cheech and one of the council members. And it was a stunning conversation because I always assume that comedians are observant and smart people, right? To be a good comedian, you've got to be smart. You can't be a dummy and be a good comedian. Even if your humor is childish, sophomoric, as much of the Cheech and Chong work was uh, back in the day. Uh, you got to be smart, and so I I knew he was going to be a smart guy. The fact that he was an art collector, yeah, of course he's a smart guy. What I didn't realize about him was how erudite he was. This guy is well read across a wide range of subjects, and so we had this long conversation that ranged across a number of different things, social art. I remember specifically, he asked me, as someone who'd been in government, what did I think about all of the murders and what was going on in Chicago? Because uh, he knew I had been from Oakland, so he knew it was another challenged city. And it was just, it, it was like we were friends immediately. And so that night, Melissa and I go to the opening, and it's ex- kind of expecting there be fifty, same 50 people that we always have. And the place is jammed packed several hundred people at the opening and all of these faces latino faces that i had not seen before at art openings in riverside doctors accountants middle managers bankers lawyers the wide range of the majority representing the majority of the population of riverside which is majority latino out for this because they were seeing an art show that spoke to them and their culture and their experience and I was absolutely floored and immediately the light bulb went off in my head I grabbed the number 2 guy at the art museum and I said
2: you see this
0: and he says yeah I said we got to get him to donate his art collection to Riverside it belongs here in LA it'll just be another celebrity's collection But here, it'll make a big difference in people's lives. And so about a week and a half later, we had dinner. My wife and I, my wife is my unpaid museum consultant. My wife and I had dinner with the museum people. We came up with a pitch. We prepared a brochure. We got an hour with Cheech. i to drive into L.A. to to spend an hour with him before he was going to give a talk about his art. And I pitched him and said, as I handed him this, you know, specifically made for him brochure to show him how what was the main library could be made the Marin Center for Chicano Art, Culture, and Industry. Mm -hmm. And when I put it over to him, I said, you know, we've done a lot of work and we believe in what you're doing in, in this collection and we think it belongs in Riverside. So I hope you'll look at this and I hope that our idea won't go up in smoke. And that made him laugh because it was so damn corny. And um, he said, wow, you know, we could do this? And he seemed genuinely taken aback by the proposal. Um, I expected not to hear from him for months about it. Two days later, his business person, his contact person, calls and says, he's an intuitive person he thinks it makes sense he wants to do it and then we nice. were on our way and that's how that um, it wasn't that was not a hard negotiation that was much easier than i thought it was to be
2: so we've got you know not that many minutes left here uh, in our hour i want to talk a little bit about sure. the future right and so sure. you know cities we talked about you know <laughs> the legislature used to be in their pocket we touched on the great recession i mean there's potentially another you know dramatic change in local government i'm wondering Mm -hmm. you know if you can kind of look into the future here you know presuming we get you know some kind of recovery here in the next year or so what do you think local government looks like in the post-covid era i mean i would argue it never fully recovered its levels from you know the housing bust and certainly dismantling and redevelopment cities already a different entity than they were 10 years ago you know what does the future look like and does it mean that you privatize or contract out more things you know just as an example mm-hmm. what, do, what do you see
0: well um you know privatization
2: works in
0: some cases and in other cases it doesn't right the the, the, the grand bargain in privatization is the following when you privatize once you're you, you, you gain a lot In terms of not having to, for example, run a fleet of trucks or um, you know buy equipment and deal with workers' comp and all of the extra stuff, right? That you don't have to do. Someone else has to do it. And so, from a risk management perspective, contracting out in the short term is not a bad idea. But if you contract out a service that you were providing, when you hit the point that you can no longer go back into the you know, go back into doing it yourself where you lose the institutional capacity mm-hmm. to perform that service for the public? Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't just act just Now you don't have the equipment. Now you don't have people who know how to do it. The managers who were specialists in it, they're not there anymore. Once you lose that capacity, then you're really at the mercy of your contractor, and you're at the mercy of the market. And you lose control. I've never been one who worried about, you know, amassing as much bureaucratic control over every function. And I have been in favor of, which is heresy when when I was a Democrat, I have in certain cases been in favor of contracting out functions. A a modular approach is the modern approach to not just public sector, but private sector. But um, you have to be careful in doing it and it is also true that in certain times it makes sense to contract out a service and it might not make sense at certain other times it really is a case-by-case decision i am not in the least bit uh, ideological about this That i think contracting out is great and that's the way you should go or contracting out is bad you shouldn't go that way um and i don't think the state government should get itself involved in it i think that is a decision that really needs to be calibrated community by community provided that the state government can of course make sure that there are appropriate protections in the private sector in terms of health safety a fundamental wage rates that protect the workers so that you don't just have So that contracting out is not merely a race to the bottom, but instead a a marketplace of competition. And if the city can do it, I mean, there wouldn't be uh, a lot of desire to contract out if it weren't so much of the burden that attends to having city employees. Large bureaucracy, civil service, collective bargaining. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm just saying they all add expense.
2: And do you they think they also that COVID changes the equation on, on any of that? Um, how many people did you guys have in Irvine? I'm sorry, say that again? How many, how many, how many FTE are there in Irvine? Uh,
0: uh, somewhere around 1,500
2: altogether. And do you think well, that do you think that will be the case five years from now?
0: Uh, probably it won't get bigger. I don't think it gets too much smaller in Irvine because the expectation of service level by the Irvine public is as high as I've ever seen. Mm. It is a, it, 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 it was a pleasure to at the, have, as my last managed city, have Irvine. I mean, it was annoying because people are very entitled. The Irvine, the average Irvine resident is more entitled than any other resident I've seen. On the other hand, the average Irvine resident is also more highly educated on average and has higher income and can pay for those services. So, so what about Irvine a, yeah. is a unique case.
2: Yeah. What about uh, what about other now, cities I mean do you think do every, you think COVID portends large changes for municipal services? Or do you yeah, think I that do, I, well, you know, if the economy recovers it goes back to basically the way it was?
0: No, it doesn't. No, I, I think
2: anyone who thinks that COVID is
0: a bump from which we then come out the way, say, um, the way, say, the uh, housing bubble bursting was, you know, a long, long rut, but nevertheless, a rut didn't change the world. Um, mm-hmm. see, at least not for government. Change you know, how how hard it is to get a mortgage for people. But okay, whatever. Uh, that probably needed to become a little more stringent. Um, but. Anyone who thinks that COVID is an isolated period, event, era, I think is missing that COVID is actually, uh, it is a moment of inflection. There are so many aspects that, and I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, let's just take one of them, telecommuting. Um, In the public sector, telecommuting has been viewed with an extremely jaundiced eye compared to say the private sector, and people it's because people have been told for 40 or 50 years that government employees are lazy grifters at heart and if you let them work from home they won't work at all they'll you know wear rabbit slippers and watch days of our lives and eat bonbons and collect a check it's really annoying because that's not the experience i've had with public say, sector. Yeah, totally false perception. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's nonsense. It's politically driven and it's, it's just, it's really offensive, but it's there. And so in the cities I've been in, uh, the last two, I've tried to move the local electeds to be more welcoming of flex schedules and telecommuting on the theory that we're not providing the younger people who are coming into government work. We're not providing them with the same package of benefits that the last generation got. So you're no longer competing where, okay, salaries are a little lower, but you get job security and better benefits. Now all you get is some level of job security, but you don't get better benefits. You don't get better pay. And now you're not getting
2: the flexibility that you're offered in the private sector. Yeah, And so you've got to at least Work environment. Yeah. yeah, you've got to at least stay up with the
0: flexibility, and in both cases, both in Riverside and in Irvine, that was met with resistance. And and now because of COVID, and I and that I've heard this story, you know, I read all the literature, of course. This is not unusual to Riverside and Irvine. This is standard um, across America. In terms of how electeds either themselves perceive government employees or are concerned that their constituents perceive government employees. And therefore, they don't want to be the one to say, it's okay if you work from home. Um, COVID changed that because with COVID, we've had to shut, all kinds of cities have had to shut city halls, and work has had to happen remotely. Once that happens, cities Some are to put in a the genie position. Back in the bottle. Yeah, yeah. Cities. Well, no. It's just it's been validated that the work gets done. That actually, yeah. public sector employees, at least the man- mid management and the people who have discretion over permits and inspections and those things, yeah, yeah, can work just as well from home as they can work in an office. What does that mean? Well, I think it has two major impacts. Uh, I know we're almost out of time, but look for impact in terms of cities most cities are growing in population at least in california and most all of them have plans on the books to build additional municipal buildings for their staff Mm -hmm. look for savings to come as those um as those plans are either slowed down or abandoned because you don't need the extra office space that's one piece the other piece is For 25 darn years now, I'm frustrated with this issue. We've been talking about the social equity issue of the digital divide,
2: Mm -hmm. and
0: very little has been done to address the digital divide outside of some very good work done by some nonprofit organizations. Some cities have addressed it; most have not. If we're going to tell people that most services are now going to be available primarily, Online. And if we're going to say that in order to work for this or that city and to move up, you're going to need to be able to work from home online, then we can't continue, forget about California as a nation, we can't continue to have 25% of the population without access to high speed broadband internet. That's got to become viewed like electricity and running water. All of that impacts these cities. There are long-term
2: impacts to COVID. As a a technology commissioner here in uh, Long Beach, I I fully agree. Um, I think we are out of time. There's, of course, many other things I'd like to cover with you. Um, Do you want to uh, let people know um, what's next for you very, very briefly? And if if so, how people can get a hold of you? Sure. So on
0: uh, the 14th of September, I'll be opening a consultancy because isn't everybody uh, who's retired a consultant in one way or another. Uh, I'll be opening a consultancy called Synchronicity Associates. And for those Not who are my age, too. yeah, exactly. Everybody will appreciate the reference to the fabulous band, the police. Um, synchronicity, because the last four letters is city of synchronicity. Uh, synchronicity That's Associates. like your third pun in one hour. Use a pun, go to jail. Um, so, um... Synchronicity will open on September 14th. Uh, there'll be an outreach, sort of a PR thing done on October, early October, uh, not quite yet, because um, I want to make sure I got all the bugs out of the website and everything. But uh, there's a website that's designed, ready to go live, um, and I'll be hoping to work both with uh, public agencies that want to bring somebody in to speak some hard truths about changes that need to be made in the administrative structure of the organization, that it'd be hard for those who have to continue to live in that organization to say those things, you know, kind of auditing and and organizational management reviews, those types of things. Uh, Also, I'll be looking to work with private entities uh, who want sort of a, if you will, a spirit guide who can tell them how to work their way through a local government from all aspects. Meaning, the political aspect, how is it viewed by the elected? The legal aspect, how is it going to be viewed by the lawyers? And then finally, how will the bureaucracy respond to this proposal and policy proposal? And how will it actually be implemented? It's one thing to write a plan, it's another thing to help put together a plan that can not only pass its way through a legislative body, but can also be effectively implemented and provide real service for the community and profitability if you're a company. And my strange background, having been a council member, having been a city attorney, and having been a city manager, allows me to have that 360-degree view of how the inner workings of government actually function. So I think that may be valuable. Okay, and thank you, John. Um, and thanks all of you for
1: listening. Uh, I'll make one more plug for the California City News, California County News Jobs Board and our newsletters themselves. Uh, you can access either at the creatively named californiacitynews.org and or californiacountynews.org. Uh, so please sign up if you're not already and, uh, you know, stay tuned for, for future podcasts and future content from us. Thanks all.